Now let's get to a sermon today. Uh, there are some out who have diabetic problems and other difficulties. Well, that was the other thing I was going to mention. The, the song, uh, the, the uh, piano player not only is fasting, but she's also quite pregnant, which is uh, a difficult combination when you're trying to fast and, and feed too and, and so on. So that was the reason we had problems there. We are fasting today, <clears throat> at least I think most of us are, and uh, questions have come up really as to why. I addressed this in a sermon about, well, it was in the Isaiah series, and when we came to Isaiah 58, it fit in naturally with the flow of Isaiah to discuss the fast of Zechariah. And I want to entitle this today, uh, The Fast of Zechariah. That'll be the title of the sermon for those who take care of tapes. But are they really necessary for us to keep? Is it something we should do? Uh, some of you heard that sermon. I think most of you did. And maybe, we didn't, maybe I didn't focus on it quite enough or explain it quite well enough. And sometimes when something is new, <laughs> it does take more than one sitting to get it across or get it through or to make it understandable for everyone. Sometimes some people will focus on one thing and they're getting that and then somebody else's mind is kind of drifting at that moment and then this one will tune back in and that one will tune out. You know how your mind is and sometimes we can miss. <clears throat> how many times did Mr. Armstrong go over the two trees and uh, we thought we got it and he said we didn't get it but man, he... I don't remember, nor would anyone, I guess, how many times he approached that subject. And whether he had it correctly, totally correct or not, is neither here nor there. The point I'm making is how many times did he feel he had to go over it and we were still not quite getting the point. And how many times have we read all these scriptures about Laodiceanism and so on, and we're still not quite grasping, getting fully the point of what God really desires us to do today. <clears throat> now in Worldwide, we had a pretty good understanding of some things, I think. Uh, a lot of New Testament teaching, I believe, to have been correct. And the overall flow of prophecy, we tended to have uh, sort of in line, but there were some things that we were absolutely missing which uh, made us retarded, if you will, in terms of our understanding. And God is putting us through a great deal today to help remove the spiritual retardation that we were suffering under. And it was partly lack of understanding, but mostly lack of commitment to what we did know that upset God. We were not following fully what we had been taught. And God does not really get all over us in Revelation 3 for lack of knowledge or truth. What he really didn't like was attitude. What he really didn't like 
was us thinking we had everything we needed, that we were rich and increased with goods, well-dressed spiritually, and everything was fine. It was that attitude of complacence and thinking we didn't need anything more that God was the most upset about. Now, there are other doctrinal issues on the side which we have learned some things about since and I believe have corrected, and there probably will be more. But that wasn't the biggest thing God was concerned about. And what we are going to discuss today has a lot to do with the attitude found there in Revelation 3 about the Laodicean church. Now I want to discuss once more, like the two trees, a little bit of background. And that is something that we so easily missed in the past and must see now, and must be able to apply really to everything in the Bible. Because if we miss this and fail to apply it, or only apply it when it seems good to us, we're going to miss a lot of understanding. Now, let me start out then by saying, as I have many times before, the whole Old Testament is written to the New Testament church. That we must understand if we are going to understand prophecy, if we're going to understand the flow of the history of man and what God's purpose and plan is and where we're going, you must know your roots. You must know what you started with, the history of what happened, what God did in reaction, what man should have done in reaction to that, and where we should be today. Without a grasp of the history of what has gone on in the past, we are in deep trouble. Now why did God say in Malachi 4 that at the end he would send Elijah the prophet to restore all things? Now Malachi is an end time book. Most of the church, if you talk to them today, would say that Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23, and Malachi 1 are end-time prophecies about the church of God today because they indict the ministry very heavily. They have no problem with that. But there are many, many other scriptures back there that say, oh, well, that, does, that just applied to ancient Israel or national Israel. It doesn't apply to the church today. Well, does it or doesn't it? Does it all or does it not? Or is it just a mixed bag where you can just pick and choose what you want to believe from the Old Testament and bring forward that which you like and leave back there what you don't like? Can we do that? Does God allow that? Is the Bible written that way? This is a very key and crucial thing for us to understand in this day and age. I know it's not a new concept to you, most of you, some are new, but it's something we have to have. The whole Old Testament is prophecy for today. Mr. Armstrong understood that at least in part when he said the Bible was written for the church. I'm going to go to a couple of scriptures which you've heard before and know, but I want to 
nail this down once again. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Now, speaking of the things that happened under Moses, verse 6, Now these things were our examples, to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So it wasn't just a historical matter or doctrinal matter of the Passover and the Red Sea and so on, but it had to do with conduct is the first lesson here. All those things in the Old Testament were written as examples for our current conduct. And God is most concerned about conduct in Revelation 3. Neither be you idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Idols can be many different things, not just golden calves. Anything that gets between you and God takes your time away from God or comes in place of God, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, or any other way. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day, 23,000. God wanted an example made of that, 23,000 people dead. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur you, as some of them also murmured, can't even complain and gripe, can we? And were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things, not just Moses, but he uses examples uh, through Israel's history there, a few of them. All these things happen to them for examples. And they are written. The purpose of those things being written down and everything that he mentioned here is in the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament was written for our admonition. Everything back there has something to do with us. It is valuable for us. There is nothing in the Old Testament, I think I can prove, that is done away. It is all valid. In, a, in explanation, as I've done before, the sacrifices, animal sacrifices, are a good example of something that was not brought forth on a physical level, but was brought forth in our bodies as a living example, in Christ and his body as a living example, and a dying example in his case. We still have sacrifices today, but they are the sacrifices of a meek, quiet spirit, of a wholehearted heart, uh, of service, of giving, of love to our brethren, and so on. Those are the sacrifices today. But the sacrifices weren't done away with. There was simply a change made in the way that they were administered. So they're still just as valid. And David understood that this would happen. He understood it even in his day, if you read Psalm 51, that God was not concerned about bulls and goats, but his attitude. Makes it very clear. Blood of bulls and goats never did please God. It was something he did to make them understand something. But it is our hearts and minds that he's concerned about. And the sacrifice there, as per Romans 12.1, is what is important. So these things are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. 2 Timothy 3.16, you know that one, don't you? All Scripture is by inspiration of God and is there for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, the four things it mentions. All Scripture. And the only Scripture they had 
when they were preaching and teaching in the New Testament were the Old Testament scriptures. It's all they had. Didn't have the New Testament. Hadn't been codified, hadn't been put together until John did it way later on. Perhaps Luke to some degree. So they were preaching New Testament religion from the Old Testament. Jesus did the same thing. He quoted Isaiah, he quoted uh, Old Testament constantly. Now the only thing they did have different was they had had Christ there with them to teach them the living principles that were being carried forward. Now let's, let's pick up one more here. I want to go to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. And here let's start in verse 17. Matthew 5, 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets... In other words, the whole of the Old Testament, that part which explained and codified and set forth the law, all of those books that were around it, the writings, which are prophecies as well, and the prophets, those who wrote the scriptures. So he's not just talking about the Ten Commandments here, he's talking about the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to magnify, to expand, to fill up, to add to, to emphasize, if you will, to make them even more binding. Isn't it more binding that you not hate instead of just not kill? Isn't it more binding that you not commit adultery or I mean more binding that you not even lust, much less commit adultery? Isn't it more so that you not covet to steal something? Isn't that harder to accomplish than just not to steal it? You could think about stealing or killing all you wanted in the Old Testament unless you were tuned in to God, as long as you didn't actually put forth your hand and do it. So God made it far more magnified and expanded and more difficult in the New Testament. He didn't do away with anything back there. He just made it more difficult to achieve and much more that has to be done. Now we have to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Back then you could think the wrong thing and not suffer punishment unless you actually did it. Now God says he'll judge us on our thoughts. And that really even comes from Old Testament teaching, if you understand the spirit of what God was trying to accomplish. That is even said back in the Proverbs. The exact quote doesn't come back to mind at the moment, but it, it flashed into my mind there. Today I'm a little slower than usual without food and water, but uh, so please forgive that. But <clears throat> Let's go on in verse 19, or 18. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, and that hasn't happened yet, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled, magnified, accomplished. Uh, the prophets, all those things have to be accomplished too, the prophecies. Nothing is going to go away until this is all finished, and then it won't need to anyway. 
Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, see it's not talking about just the ten, but all the commandments of the Old Testament, all the statutes, the ordinances that he put forth, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to show that we have to do more than the Pharisees did. They were self-righteous in their approach because they thought they were keeping all the little things right and they made a big show of it and really they missed the overall purpose and reason for life and what God was doing. They missed the weightier matters. Now they were to do the smaller matters, not leave them undone, but be sure they got the weightier matters done. That has to be the emphasis. Now, what did Elijah do when you go back in his life? If God picked Elijah out as the type or example for the end, why didn't he pick Samuel? Why didn't he pick Elisha? Why didn't he pick uh, David? Well, he did use David as, as a type of the ministry at the end, so that's not quite there. But why did he pick Elisha or Elijah? Why not some other personality? Because there were a lot of people. Why not Enoch? Why not Noah? They preached and taught righteousness. It was because of certain conditions that existed in Israel in Elijah's day and what God caused Elijah to do about them that caused him to use Elijah and Moses as types of the end time two witnesses. Moses, because he brought the law, Moses, because he instituted on national Israel the whole word of God. In the end time, man who is to represent Moses must come in the same spirit. Now, what did Elijah do? Because, I mean, in the history of the Bible and how many times Moses is mentioned and how many times Elijah is mentioned, there's no comparison. Moses is all through. Elijah is only mentioned in a few cases. They had to do with John the Baptist. They had to do with the Elijah at the end of the age and so on. But to understand where Elijah is, has to come from at the end is to go back and examine his life. Now, I did that at the end of the Minor Prophets series to show what turning the hearts of the fathers and the children is all about on three different levels, not just uh, having YOU parties. It's far greater than that and has to do with turning our hearts to our Father in heaven and back to the hearts or back to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then finally, thirdly, lastly, and least importantly, our personal individual families of fathers and sons. Now, not that that is unimportant, but the relationship with God is what the whole prophecies of the Bible talk about. And to go back and look at what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. Now that is what Elijah told all Israel to do. He gathered all Israel on Mount Carmel. And he gathered all the prophets of Baal. 450 of them, plus 400 other of Astarte. And had a challenge. And said, how long will we halt between two opinions? Are we going to go Babylon's way or God's way? Astarte's way, or Baal's way, or God's way. That was a primary 
point in his ministry. And I think that is part of the primary focus today. Are we going to go the way of this world or the way of God? Choose you. Which way are you going to go, God says. And when he began that prayer for God to show the difference, he says, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He pointed them back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now there are some today who are trying to formulate doctrine who will say, well, what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob thought or did really wasn't all important because it wasn't codified in law. Or what Israel did in the Old Testament was just national or ancient Israel. That is incredibly dangerous thinking to go that way. God tells us over and over and over again through the prophecies, and I'm not going to go through them all today, and says, look to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at what they thought. Look at what they did. And go and do likewise. Don't minimize those men. They, Abraham was the father of the faithful. Anything Abraham did, you had better take a very close look at, and you had better not diminish it or try to work around it. Anything Isaac did, you had better pay close attention to. Anything Jacob did, pay very close attention to. Try not to avoid or omit or minimize anything Jacob did, because he was renamed Israel. That's where Elijah, in that day, pointed. Pointed to God in heaven first, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob secondly. And that is what must be done today. Otherwise, God would not have used Elijah as that example. He would have picked someone else. So, everything in the Old Testament is very much part and parcel with what we had better be doing today. Your whole comprehension and correct understanding of the Bible and prophecy really hinges on Hebrews 12, 22, and 23. I've quote that, quoted that one many, many times. But there he explains the code that unlocks Old Testament teaching and prophecy. And that code is that Zion, Jerusalem, Israel, Judah are code words for spiritual Israel today. Without that understanding, the whole church of God today, all the organizations for the most part, and most individuals cannot understand the Old Testament. They cannot understand prophecy. They cannot understand what God is doing, and for the most part, they cannot understand what has happened to the church today and why it has happened. But if you understand that and you apply those code words to spiritual Israel to the church today, then the prophecies absolutely come alive. If you ignore those code words and don't follow through with it, 
you immediately revert or retard your, in, your understanding at least 40 years, maybe 2,000 years, because it hasn't been understood since the early New Testament church how much these Old Testament books have to do with our lives. Peter, Paul, James, and John understood. They quoted from them constantly. What is it said? One third of the New Testament is actually quotes from the Old? That number comes to mind, but it was, it's, an, it's an amazing amount that is actually quoted or paraphrased from the Old Testament. Incredible amount. I found one just the other day in uh, Psalms. I had someone take umbrage to the idea that we shouldn't be eating of the foods of Babylon because of the principle there about Daniel not eating the king's dainties. And that principle, I think, certainly can be brought forward. Somebody will say, well, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink and so on. No, it's not. But our body is a temple of God's spirit, and God tells us that we should take very diligent care of his temple. Does he want his temple defiled? Does he want it filled with junk? Is God a junk man? I don't think so. Now Christ is going to take over a junkyard here on this earth. We have to understand that. He is willing not to make a junkyard. He's willing to take one on that somebody has created and clean it up. We are a second-hand bride if you will. Second-hand rose. We are not chaste virgins before God, nor is anyone on this planet. But Paul quotes the Old Testament in saying to the first the church in Corinth that he would present them as chaste virgins. They would no longer be second-hand roses. They would be clean and pure and white. He's going to clean up this junky world. He's not going to permit it any longer. But I, interesting, found a verse in the Psalms this week that said not to partake of king's dainties, echoing what Daniel had said. I hadn't noticed that one before. It just caught my eye. You know... We want to ignore parts of the Old Testament sometimes. What about Daniel? It's in the Old Testament, isn't it? Well, anybody who wants to preach prophecy, they'll go to Daniel. They'll say, this was sealed up till the end. Well, that means to me it's an end-time book. And, boy, we like to go to Daniel, try to figure it out. I don't think anybody has yet, because I think it's still been closed. Maybe it's partially opening, but... There's still a lot there that is hard to comprehend. There are a lot of different theories, and you can read whole books that will explain the whole thing to you that were written 100 or 200, 300 years ago, and it was still sealed, but they'll still explain it all to you, okay? And we have those today that think they can explain everything in Daniel. I don't think so. There's things in there that certainly puzzle me, unless you're a lot smarter than I am, and a lot of you are, but that's neither here nor there. There's a lot there that we still don't understand. But we do believe it's for the end time, don't we? Well, except that part about King's Danies and that part about fasting and that part about, you know, on and on we could go. 
what we do is we take our little cakewalk through the prophecies, picking out what we like, but if there's something in the Old Testament that needs to be brought forth to the New Testament that we don't like, that was just national Israel, thank you. That's just ancient Israel. That, that logic won't work. And if, if we use it, we are getting ourselves into very deep, dangerous water or thin ice. And thin ice leads to deep, dangerous water. We can't be selective. Every principle in the Old Testament has an application in the New. Nothing, not one jot or one tittle has been done away. Some things have been changed, and there are three or four or five things uh, specifically mentioned by Paul, different ones that have been changed, not done away with, changed. Now that's what Christ said in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I didn't come to destroy anything. I didn't come to do away with anything. I came to magnify it, to expand it, to make it more binding, to make it more important, to make it more spiritually fulfilling. And I'll give you my Holy Spirit to help you do it because I'm ratcheting up the bar. The standard is going to be higher. And you're going to need help to do it. And he gave us the grace, the mercy, the pardon from our sins and freed us to be able to move forward and do every word of God. Space to repent, opportunity, his help, his strength from the Holy Spirit, his undivided attention in that sense that we might do it. Now, that I've consumed a lot of time with a little background, let's go to Zechariah 7. Well, you can be turning there, but I'm going to do a little review for you. What about Zechariah? Daniel's an end-time book, but most of the church and worldwide under us, for the most part, did not understand Malachi and Zechariah as end-time books. And yet, the discussion is about the end-time church. It's about the two witnesses in chapter 3 and 4 and 6. It's about the church having been taken back to Babylon by two unclean birds, to Koch by name, and set on its evil base in Babylon, what chapter 5 is about. The whole opening of Zechariah is about the end time. Then you go to 7 and 8. We'll skip over that for the moment. But continue on through the book. And what does it talk about? The return of Christ, keeping peace in the millennium and so on in chapter 14. It's all looking forward from uh, its roots in history. Now, ancient Judah did go into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. But, was it just for that 70, or is there an end-time application? We've been there before, and I certainly believe that that is true. Daniel was written for the end. Let me flip back for a moment to Daniel 9. Daniel 9.
The first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be in, or taken captive, and the Jews would be in the clutches of Babylon for seventy years. Now that church was taken, or that group of people was taken to Babylon. The church today was born in Babylon. And there are a couple of scriptures to that effect. One in Psalms, one in the prophecy somewhere. Well, I'll forget exactly where that one is. But this man was born in Babylon, speaking of the leader, one of the leaders of the end-time church. That's somewhere around Isaiah 41, somewhere right in there. So what did Daniel do? I set my face to the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So when he wanted the arm of Babylon lifted, what did he do? He fasted, he prayed, he besought God. Now we are under the hand of Babylon and all the prophecies at the end time, including Revelation 18, say to depart from Babylon, get out of Babylon, have nothing to do with Babylon. And Daniel is an end time book, isn't it? So is this just a historical record that doesn't mean a thing to you and me here in Daniel 9? I don't think so. It's a book that for the most part has been sealed until the end. So whatever is in this book is totally important for us today. So this prayer of deliverance is really, truly important. It is an end-time prophecy. Now, in Zechariah, we have the whole setting of the book is end-time. Now, it is taken from the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, and when they were freed from Babylon and what they did as a historical record with a lot of truly important spiritual principles involved in Ezra and Nehemiah. He goes through and shows that they had intermarried with other nations, with other peoples, just as we have intermarried in our culture with all kinds of paganism, uh, Christmas, Easter, Halloween, you know, on and on it goes. We have intermarried with the religions and the women. Churches are women in Bible parlance, code word. Our whole society has partaken of ancient Babylon. We're part and parcel with it. God says, get out of it. But the whole prophecies are written from that standpoint. Now, the 70 years then of Daniel 9 has to be important, just as Jeremiah 25 and 29, which mentioned the 70 years, and that's how Daniel came to understand that it was for his day and for the future, was from reading Jeremiah 25 and 29. It says right there in Daniel 9. So the 70 years is important, and we have been approximately 70 years now as a church in the end time. may have even expired a little bit. Don't know exactly when Babylon's going to fall. You might remember, though, that when, when Babylon did fall, it was not until the second year of Darius that the book of Haggai opens. In other words, the Medes and Persians had been there for two years before the Jews were ever released. Well, that's a different subject, and we won't go there beyond that today. But 
Let's understand that what we read in Zechariah is not just for national ancient Israel. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah were there to tell what happened then as a historical record and to give us many uh, principles of how to live today. They restored many things. They restored the clear bloodline, which means we are to restore away from anything in this world to God's truths without any corruption from the world. He restored, uh, oh, what things come to mind. There were quite a few back there. I won't go back there and, and do that. But many things that we're doing today and should be doing today are mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, why then do we need Haggai and Zechariah if that historical record was complete and only had to do with national Israel? We wouldn't. The Haggai and Zechariah were written because there would be an end-time fulfillment and replay of everything that happened before. There would be a temple built in the end time, just like there were temples built in history. And that temple, one of them, the first one, would be torn down. Go to Matthew 24, 1 through 2. Christ said, stones on this temple will all be left with not one left on top of another, and he wasn't talking just about that temple that they were sitting in or looking at at that time. Yeah, he departed from the temple, and they showed him the buildings of the temple, pointed to those buildings as they were outside them. And Jesus said to them, See you not all these things? Truly I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. That temple was going to be destroyed. And it was a type of the end-time temple that would also be thrown down and destroyed. How do we know that? A, he explained that he was talking about the coming, or they asked, what would be the sign of his coming the end of the world? That's the context here, verse 3. So then he began to mention the things that would happen at the end and went through the whole Olivet prophecy there, explaining the tribulation, the flight to safety, on and on and on it goes. So in the context of the temple, see, he brought the subject up. Or no, wait a minute, they, they brought it up to see those things. But he is the one that began to explain. You see that? You pointed it to, out to me. Do you see it? It's all going away. And then they ask about the end of the age. So that's the context that is explaining about what will happen to the temple. You know, that was hard to understand maybe 30, 40 years ago. Uh, we thought that the temple that was here was to be the final temple. We thought we'd go to a place of safety and just some would be left behind. Certainly not you or me, but those guys would be left behind if they weren't worthy. We didn't understand that that temple had to fall on its face. And before it's done, there will not be one stone left upon another. It's going to happen. And we're seeing it happen with our very eyes. And another temple has to be built. That's why Haggai and Zechariah are back here. There has to be a latter temple, and there have to be old men, Haggai too, to be able to look at the glory or the greatest peak of spirituality, I think, of each of those, what has disappeared or is disappearing, and that which is soon to appear. There will be old men around who can compare the two, and say that the latter is far more glorious. This generation, our generation, will not pass away until this is accomplished. It has to be done quite soon. Okay, 
That is the context of Zechariah. That is the reason Zechariah and Haggai are included in the Old Testament. To explain to us who the two witnesses are. To explain to us what must be done. To explain to us what must be restored, etc. Mr. Armstrong understood this to a degree. He thought he and his son were uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua or Moses and Eli. It didn't turn out that way, even though some people still believe that those two are going to be resurrected and do that job. I don't believe that. That isn't the way God has worked or I don't think will work. If he does, my hat will be off and I'll be ready to follow. If they are indeed resurrected and if indeed they follow his word. But they better come back doing this and not be some false miracle of some kind. Better be according to this word. So Mr. Armstrong understood, at least in part, that Haggai and Zechariah had to do with today. He told me that personally in 1981. So I know he believed it. Now, let's go to chapter 7 of Zechariah, where I pointed you a half hour ago. Came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius, so the context is in the historical uh, time that they were in the process of leaving Babylon. That the word of the Lord came to Zechariah in the fourth day of the ninth month, that would have been December, even Chislu, when they had sent to the house of God, that would apply to the church today, remember your code words, Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to pray before the Eternal. And to speak to the priests, which were in the house of the eternal of hosts, went to the ministry of the church, would be the uh, correct application today. Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? See, the Jews had begun to keep some fasts that had to do with very, very important uh, historical events in the history of Israel. We'll get to those in a minute, and I think you'll see that there is a very important connection to today. But the question was asked, should this be done? Now it's being asked where? In the middle of an end-time book is where that question is posed. So it must be an important question for the end-time church. Would we not be able to make that connection? I think so. Very important for the end-time church. It wouldn't be in this book about the end-time church. Should I fast? That fast of the fifth month had to do with the siege of Jerusalem. Look at Jerusalem, the church today. Is it a church under siege? Is it under siege from Satan and his demons? Is it under siege from... Uh, false teachers? Is it under siege from uh, people who are going the other direction? Will it soon be under the siege of Babylon and they will send, Satan will send armies to even try to destroy the remnant of it? I'd say we're a church under siege today. So immediately ties in this question of should we fast like traditionally was done in this time? 
To me, Zechariah brings it to the end time. Question for today. Verse 5, speak to all the people of the land and to the priests. Now this reminds me of Revelation 11, 1 and 2. Leave out the altar of the Gentiles. It's introducing the two witnesses in Revelation just as they are introduced in Zechariah 3 and 4. Don't go to the world. Go to the altar. That would be the ministry. And those that worship that in, therein, the rest of the people. That is what they are instructed to do. And interestingly here, it says, speak to the people and to the priests. This isn't something you need to worry the rest of the world with. This is something for the church. Say, speak to them, say, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, did you at all fast to me, even to me? Now, remember what we read in Isaiah 58. That's one that has been gone through many, many times, and I've done it myself several times on the Day of Atonement, to explain the meaning of fasting. God says you are fasting for all kinds of selfish reasons, to get what you wanted, money, jobs, wives, homes, uh, good favor, you know, whatever came to your mind that you wanted and needed. So you fasted for all of those things. But that isn't the kind of fast I want. The fast I want is that you break the bands of sin and iniquity. That's what he tells us in Isaiah 52. Break the bonds of Babylon off our necks. And that we begin to deal our bread to the poor. God has blessed us with good bread and good teaching. But we need to be willing to provide that for others, not just keep it selfishly to ourselves, which is what we try to do by passing out the Passover papers. And most people didn't think that that was the right kind of bread for them. They didn't like that taste of that bread. It, had, it kind of tasted off to them. It tasted just right to me. It didn't taste good to them. They didn't want that. But we provided it, whether they wanted it or not. It was the bread we had. I think it to be correct. So he says we're to fast to begin to give to others to help others. Isn't that what Christianity is all about? To love one another, support one another, help one another, strengthen one another? It's what it's all about. So speak to the priests and the people about that. Did you fast to God? Did you fast? Well, I mean, most of the time, personally, in your experience with the church, when did people fast other than the Day of Atonement? Usually when they had their tail in the track, needed something. Oh, I'll fast so that I can get close to God and He'll give me what I want. That was generally, not always, but generally that was the approach to fasting. Did you fast to me? Verse 5 of Zechariah 7. When you did eat and when you did drink, did not you eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? They were in captivity. Woe is me. So... They would fast that they receive blessing. And that isn't the emphasis God wanted. Now, if God, if we did everything God's way and accomplished the purposes that God wants us to accomplish, we would ourselves be blessed. That was pretty much at the heart of Herbert Armstrong's teaching. You can't outgive God. Give and you will receive. 
Uh, not that your object is to do that, because if you set out with that attitude, that's wrong anyway, and God's not going to bless that. All right, God, you said if I'll do this, you'll bless me. I'm going to do it, bless me. That attitude won't work. Now, if you go wholeheartedly into serving God and doing everything He says with a wholehearted attitude, then automatically blessing will eventually come. And that's how you prove God in that sense, not with an attitude. If you got the attitude, God doesn't like that. God, God doesn't care much for attitude. You ever notice that through all the scriptures? It's all about attitude. All right, weren't you doing most of it selfishly? Should you not now hear the word which the Eternal has cried by the former prophets? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them. Shouldn't we be looking to what those men said and did? By the former prophets, when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity. Don't look at the things... Israel was doing when Israel was in captivity or under a curse. Look at Israel when Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets were saying, you have blessing. How did this come? What were they doing in those times? They weren't leaning to their own understanding. They were leaning on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and those who were preaching truth when they allowed Elijah to kill the prophets of Baal without getting all upset and trying to kill Elijah, with the exception of Jezebel, who did try to do that. Look to the times when Israel was prosperous. And the cities thereof round about when men inhabited the south and the plain. And the word of the Eternal came to Zechariah, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. That's what we need to be doing today. Oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. We did some of that in worldwide. Shouldn't have done it, but we did. And we're suffering for it today. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. Don't allow hateful, wrong, negative thoughts about your brother in your heart. Just don't let them go there. Don't let your heart, your mind, go there. Stop it. Shut it off. Don't let it happen. Bitterness will destroy you. It destroyed Esau, and God said, Do not go there in Hebrews 12. Don't let yourself get bitter for any reason. God says that we're not to offend the little ones, and we might as well have a millstone around our neck if we do so. So it's easy to say, well, don't offend me. Now, we shouldn't offend anyone. On the other hand, there's another one that says that if you are righteous serving God, nothing will offend you. So, you know, which one are we going to quote? Well, whichever way is to our advantage at the moment. Don't you offend me. Or, I shouldn't take offense. You know? you gotta, you got to use them both. you got to have both. We need to be careful not to offend, but we also know that if we are righteous, we will not take offense at anything. Nothing. Now, that requires humility instead of pride. 
And that's one of the huge doctrines of the Bible that needs to be explored some more, is, the difference, or is what God says about pride and what he says about humility. No proud will enter the kingdom. The meek will inherit the earth. We need each of us to come to the point that if someone brings up our name, meekness is one of the first things that comes to their mind. Every last one of us needs to come to that point. Think about that one. Maybe you should ask eight or ten or twenty or thirty people what words come to their mind when they think of you or think of me. Now don't say don't ask them what they when they think of me, I'll do that. What they think when they think of you. Anybody brave enough to do that? Maybe you don't really need to, maybe we just need to read this book an awful lot and see how we stack up with Christ and maybe what he thinks of us when he thinks of us. What, what words come to his mind? See, he's going to rename us someday. He's going to give us a name based on what we are. And we hope it's not Belial. We hope it's mercy, love, patience, forgiveness, meekness, humility, the fruit of God's Spirit. And that our name will reflect that when he gives us our new name. But, see, certain words, when he thinks of each and every one of us, are going to come to his mind. And he's going to formulate a name for each one of us. If we're in his kingdom. And that name will reflect our character, just like it did in the names that he gave to quite a few different people in the Bible. So think about that one a little bit. Now let's carry on here. <clears throat> Verse 11. But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulders, stopped their ears that they should not hear. The church today does not want to hear there is unjust judgment. We're not taking care of each other. We're not showing enough love and concern for each other. Don't want to hear that. They think that they're fine. Everything is okay. We're the Philadelphians is what most think. Don't want to hear that. Yet they made their hearts as an atom of stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the eternal of hosts has sent in his spirit by the former prophets. The end time message basically is the message of the former prophets, combined with the New Testament message and amplified by Jesus Christ. But you can't leave this behind. Now the, the message he sent by the former prophets and what they said came to pass. Notice the end of the verse. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. Now, has that happened today? Did we see a church that was more or less unified, and suddenly there came a great wrath, and to put it in Revelation 3 terms, a spewing of the church? Same thing has happened. This was prophecy for today. Therefore it has come to pass that as he cried and they would not hear, so they cried and I would not hear. Doesn't God say he's turned his face, his ear from us, and all the prophecies? Yes, he has. Do people have trouble getting their prayers answered today? Do you and I? Do the rest of the churches? Yes, they do. We are in a process here 
of turning our hearts to him, because when he, he says when we turn wholeheartedly, he will turn to us there in Jeremiah 31, I think it is. Obviously, we're not there yet, because it hasn't happened yet. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them, but no man passed through nor returned, for they laid the pleasant land desolate. The church, which was a pleasant place to be, has been turned desolate. And now you can go from sea to sea, or city to city, and barely find it, and pretty soon you'll go from sea to sea and not find it. That's where we're headed. Okay. Chapter 8. Again, the word of the Eternal of Hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Eternal of Hosts, I was jealous for Zion, with great jealousy. That's the church. Code word, Hebrews 12, 22 through 23. And will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. That's the church. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth. Can only be talking about the church. Jerusalem today as a physical city is not a city of truth. It is a city of evil, corruption, and antichrist is what it is. Been there, seen it. And the mountain of the eternal of hosts, the holy mountain. Would God describe the church today as his holy mountain? I don't think so. There's nothing holy about the church for the most part today. It is unholy in self-righteousness, complacency, self-respect, and self-analysis as righteous. That is not holiness, not God's holiness. So you and I are not holy. Now we have been a set apart and sanctified to be holy, but we became unholy in our approach. We did not put God first, and therefore... His grace was lifted, and the curse came. Now we are struggling to come back under the good graces, the favor, and the grace of God. Now you and I certainly are living under grace. But because of our actions, I mean, God is giving us time, space to repent. But we are under penalty for our sins, for our self-righteousness, our negligence and our nonchalance and thinking that we were just as good as the Pharisees. No, we really didn't. We think we were better than the Pharisees. Come on now. We did. I hadn't really thought of that one, but we did. They thought they were righteous and going right to the kingdom of heaven. Didn't we think the same thing? Nothing wrong with us. We're rich and increased with spiritual goods. The good favor of God was removed. He turned his face from us. We had better be seeking his grace again. His good favor. His blessing. Because we are supposed to be called a city of truth and a holy mountain. And in the latter temple, it is going to be that way. God is going to separate out one of the daughters of Zion, one of the splits, and he's going to use them to be the catalyst for which, to which the faithful remnant at the end comes from wherever they are, whatever organization or lack thereof. 
Thus says the Eternal of hosts, There shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. We are an older generation, but we will not die out before these things come to pass. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. God is going to do this before this generation is gone and before all the children that grew up or are growing up in it are gone. I thought it would happen when I was still a boy. But we were wrong in timing. No man among us knows how long the psalm says. But it will happen in God's time. And I believe that these prophecies are limited to the present generation of the church. He's not calling many more right now. Verse 6, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Eternal of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east and from the west country. Isn't that what Haggai is? He will gather the people, he'll stir them to come together, talking about now, not ancient Israel. And I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. So what Elijah and Moses must do, primarily Elijah is the emphasis there in Malachi 4, is restore truth and right conduct. The truth is not enough unless you do it. And trying to do it is not enough unless you're doing it in truth. God said his spirit, or we must worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's exactly what this is saying, that it must be the right spirit of righteousness and in truth. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, let your hands be strong. Same thing he says in Haggai, Zephaniah, other places. Be strong, be of good courage. Fear not and work. <laughs> that here in these days, these words by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, that the temple might be built. And we're in those days again. The temple, the foundation of the temple, the latter temple, has to be being laid. You're going to get the thing built before this generation dies out. It's going to happen pretty soon. For before these days, there was no hire for man nor any hire for beast. In other words, famine in the land. Aren't we in a period of famine now, before the end of the age? Isn't it very difficult to find good spiritual teaching now? Yes, it is. Neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction. How much peace is there in the church today? There's so much going back and forth so many different directions, it's just confusion. You want to know how much peace there is in the world and the church today? Read the journal. Uh, there's an awful lot of confusion and frustration and many things being bandied back and forth. I'm not knocking the publication. I'm just saying it's a reflection of the minds and attitudes of those who write in letters and articles and so on, and it's a, it's, it's a Babylon of confusion out there in the church. Everyone thinking is right, and everybody can't be right. For I said all men, everyone against his neighbor. Church is in turmoil. A lot of people will only speak to their own relatives in some organizations. Because they've been banned or disfellowshipped or put out. You can't even speak to your relatives. 
But now I will not be to the residue of this people as in the former days, says the Eternal of hosts. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase. The heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. Isaiah 54, 55. The blessings beginning to return. Haggai 2.9, or is it 2.9? But anyway, there it says that uh, the blessings will return on the ninth and 24th day of, uh, well, basically of December. Many, many scriptures. We could go to Joel. We could go to Amos. We could go to a lot of places that show the former and latter rains will return and so on in prophecies to the church today. I won't go there. We've been there. And it shall come to pass, verse 13, that as you were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Talking to us now. You know, I think we are in the middle of this. I think God is showing us these things and this knowledge so that we can be a part of it. I think that Zechariah 2 applies. I think that God has led us out to be the prep crew to get people out in the desert and the wilderness away from Babylon. I think he is using us to begin that. Now, who the leadership will ultimately be and how big it will get, those are all things that have to do with the scriptures, and I'm not implying that or saying that. But I, we have the knowledge. We have the understanding. God would expect us to act on that and do something about it. I can't imagine anyone who understands the things that we have been talking about these last years not wanting to be part and parcel in it. Is there something somewhere on earth today God is doing? Can you see from Scripture that God has his hand in it? If you can see God's hand in something somehow, some way, somewhere, would you not want your hand in it? Would you not want to be part of it? If I see things happening somewhere else, not here, that are fulfilling all these prophecies that we've been talking about and God begins to do the things we've been reading about, I'm going to go there. If he starts doing it here, I'm going to stay here. But I'm going to stay here until I can discern where God is doing it. If it's here, wonderful. If it's somewhere else, we'll go there. Or at least I will. So I'm not saying we're anything special other than God, I think, gave us a job to do, which I've said many times before. And I wouldn't want to be anywhere else rather than right here where he's doing it. If this is a job he's given these few people to do, to be a janitor crew or a prep crew or whatever you want to call it, that's where I want to be. I don't want to be anywhere else. If we understand the scriptures, I can't comprehend how we would want to be anywhere else doing anything else. Verse 14. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, as I thought to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Eternal of hosts, and I repented not. So again have I thought in these days to do well to Jerusalem, to the house of Judah, fear not. So in spite of all the scattering that's happened, it's going to turn out beautiful in the end if we hang in there. These are the things that you shall do. Speak you every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. 
And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor, and love no false oath. For all these are things that I hate, says the Eternal. Now, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, with this background, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness and cheerful feasts, therefore love the truth and peace. Now that's not what these days have been in the past. Let's take a brief look at why those four fasts that we just read of were instituted in the first place. They had to do with national calamities to Israel and Judah. We today in the church have faced, in that sense, a national calamity, international calamity, if you will. They had to do with, first of all, the 17th day of the fourth month, which is today. It is apparently, or it is at least in Jewish uh, lore or history, the day the golden calf was made. That's a day to fast, is it? It's probably the day that Moses broke the tables of the law because of the golden calf and their conduct around it, the idolatry. It is the day that possibly the daily sacrifice was stopped anciently. Many, many horrible things happened on this day in Israel's history. It is the day that Jerusalem was stormed by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that was an incredible day in the history of Judah, was it not? Because that is the beginning, really, of the entire captivity of the whole nation. That would go into Babylon for 70 years and sit by the rivers of Babylon and weep for 70 years. Now, we in the end time are involved in a 70-year prophecy, as per Zechariah 1, Daniel 9, 2, and Jeremiah 25 and 29. And I believe that it is complete or almost complete. So, the history is happening again in the same way. And this is a book about prophecy in Zechariah. Front, back, and, if you will, in the middle. Chapter 7, 8, 9. So we are experiencing the same church calamity that, as spiritual Jews that they had then. Now, is it selfish to fast for all spiritual Israel? Is that a fast that God would have us do? Something that we should be very much in mind of day in and day out? Are we not every day of our lives somehow caught in this devastation and captivity in Babylon? Aren't we fighting every day of our lives to get apart from it in every way, emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually? I can show you examples where we're to remove physically and spiritually from Babylon. As far as we can get, but he says, go dwell in a field, even in Babylon, Micah 4, but get away from it. Now, isn't that a calamity that has hit the whole church? 
And isn't most of the church still fairly comfortable in Babylon and not even trying to really get out? I think that the conditions we are living under are the same conditions that this day was set aside as a national fast day for. Same problems. All right, what about the ninth day of the fifth month? The ninth of Av, as it's called. That was the day that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple of God. Isn't the church of God, the temple of God, being destroyed today, stone by stone by stone, until there will be not one on top of another? All the organizations, all the governments broken down? We're almost there. Isn't far off. Zechariah 11 is only a few chapters ahead, which talks about three big trees and three ministries being cut off in one month when you get to this point. It was also the same day, ninth of Av, fifth day, ninth month, when the second temple was destroyed by Titus. Temple was destroyed, destroyed twice on the same day of the year. Now, doesn't that mark that day as a day of great woe and trouble and one that we need deliverance from? Don't we need deliverance from Jerusalem being stormed by Babylon with all of its TV and movies and music and booths and anything you want to name? Aren't we besieged by the destruction of the temple in the midst of Babylon? Okay, the third day of the seventh month of Tishri was the death of Gedaliah. Uh, Judah fled to Egypt, and it was the final destruction of Judah. See, a lot of the Jews had been taken into captivity. Gedaliah remained alone to lead, and then they came to destroy and killed him. And a lot of the Jews then that were left fled to Egypt. How many of the prophecies tell us, go not to Egypt? Don't go to this world. Don't go to its sinful ways. Get out of Babylon. Stay away from Egypt. But the church, for the most part, is going the wrong way. The tenth day of the tenth month was when the siege of Jerusalem actually began. When it first began to be attacked. Now, it comes later in the year, but it, it happened in a, in a previous year, you see. Uh, so the siege came, and then the destruction came. But the tenth day of the tenth month of one year, the siege began, and then later on, in a different month of a different year, uh, Jerusalem fell. So you have four dates there that are very important. This siege on the church, we began to see come as soon as the Scotches came in, right? And then we saw basically the falling down and destruction of it. We've seen the temple falling apart then, even if you say, well, I didn't stay in Worldwide, we came out, but all the organizations are slowly falling apart. Are they not? And will there come a final siege, like the death of Gedaliah when the rest of the Jews had to flee for their very lives and many went to Egypt? See, we're suffering under the same conditions. Now, why did it say to speak this to the ministry and to the people today in an end-time context? Because history repeats. God works in patterns. That which happened before is happening before our very eyes. And the things that we are talking about here are at the very root 
of every problem you and I face today in the church. These four fasts stand that. God's curse on ancient Israel, his sending the prophets to say it would be destroyed, and those prophets being written down, those prophecies being written down so that we in the end time could see them as examples for our age of why those things happen. And then when they happen to us in the church today, we go back and we read it and see why it happened and what must be done about it. That's what this is all about. These four facts summarize everything that is going on in the church today. Is it any wonder God would put them in the middle of a book of prophecy about the end time of the two witnesses, the former and the latter temple, and what will be done to restore truth? Else God will come back and smite the earth with the curse. <laughs> Yeah, you can say Malachi 1 stop the church. Then you can say other parts of Malachi don't have anything to do with anything but ancient Israel. What are you going to do with Malachi 4? Day of the Lord, end of the age. If these truths and righteousness are not restored, it's all going to be wiped out. What God says, end of Malachi. The weight is not just on me, brethren, as I said in the announcement before. I feel a lot of the weight because I have to make sure that I am following correct doctrine and following it properly. But you must also. The buck doesn't necessarily all stop here. It doesn't do any good if the minister is a nice guy and is teaching the truth unless the words mean something, unless you adopt truth and follow it, be doers of it, it doesn't mean anything. I can yell and scream, anybody could, about coming out of Babylon, about getting rid of our connection with this world, as the Bible so plainly says. And if you want to say that's just nationalism, what anything to do with me, I guess you can but please give it a really close look because I think the things we're reading in these prophecies have to do with today. And that's why I think that we need to be keeping these facts. It's because they are in the middle of prophecy and they have to do with everything that we are going through right now. Absolute summary of what's happening. And there's a lot in the context that has to do with our conduct and what we should do. <clears throat> And I believe that's why he put these prophecies here. Let's close this now and go on down and finish this. Verse 20, Thus says the eternal of hosts, have yet come to pass, that there shall come people and the inhabitants of many cities. He's going to draw his remnant together, as Haggai says. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the eternal. Let's, let's hurry up. They're eager to worship for a change. Instead of just sitting in the church... They're eager to worship for a change. And to seek the Lord of hosts, I will go also. Yes, many people and strong people shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. That's the church. It's the only place you can seek him, because the rest of the world is going to worship the beast. Only one place you can come. 
Thus says the Eternal of hosts, in those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the people for the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, not one who says he is a Jew but isn't, but God is going to make it clear who the true spiritual Jews are, and then people will come from all over the world to take hold of the true Jew, saying, we will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. They will have heard of miracles. They will have heard of mighty acts of God. And that will stir them to come where God is working. That's the way this thing is going to end. And just before he makes that summary statement at the end of this chapter, he brings up, the fasts of the months, because they were truly important in Israel's history, and there is nothing more important going on right now than the very things that these fasts are about. Not back then, but now, here and now, today, we face a destroy a church that is being besieged and destroyed. A faithful remnant is all that will remain and the rest will be burned up and destroyed. That's where we are. And that's why I think these fasts are important for New Testament Christians today. I don't think they were that important, maybe, for Herbert Armstrong. He wasn't going to live on here. You know, those Jews kept those days for 70 years in Babylon. We haven't kept them the 70 years. But now we're beginning to understand the prophecies. And if they're going to be turned into feasts of joy instead of fasts, how can you turn something into a feast of joy that you haven't even been doing? Now, if God is going to turn it into a feast of joy for us, maybe we ought to start keeping them as a fast until he turns them into a feast of joy by turning his grace and blessing back on us the way he has promised to do. That's my case for it.